back to Rabbit Hole Happy Hour. I'm Ashley. I'm Mallory. And we're feeling a whole heck of a lot better this week. <laughs> I was about to say earlier, this is going to be like a huge shift from last week. <laughs> I'm two weeks in on my sexy Lexapro. <laughs> yeah, hell yeah. Got and my my Zoloft and my Rexalti going, baby. <laughs> so we are whole new humans and excited <laughs> to be back. Yeah. It, it really seems like yesterday that we were recording the last episode. It literally episode. does. It's really weird. I am a little bit sick, so and it's my turn to do the story, so sorry you get to listen to my pathetic voice this week, but not feeling too bad, so that's good. That's good. Yeah, I'm glad it's not COVID. Yes, I did test twice, just in case, and it's not. I think it's just a bad sinus infection. It, it's not even that bad, it's just a sinus infection. Hmm, so what's new? Anything new? We went out to dinner last weekend, and yes. I feel like we talked about a million things, and I was like, oh my god, we have to talk about that, or, <laughs> yeah. but now I don't remember anything. <laughs> I know. Oh, I forgot to send you that stuff on that yeah. New Zealand town, damn it. But I may do that in a future episode, so yeah. I don't want to talk about it now, but there's a really, there's something creepy going on with the town in New Zealand, and it's it's weird. Um, stay tuned. Yeah, stay tuned. <laughs> Well, Mallory just surprised me with a gift, my Christmas gift, which was some beautiful soap she made. A month late. Thank you very much. <laughs> well, I didn't even get you anything, so it's... <laughs> oh, wait. I got you a Christmas ornament yes. that I ordered while I was drunk one day. Yeah. <laughs> Ashley gave me a Christmas gift a month early, and I gave her hers a month late, so... You it's know. very representative of our friendships. So. It, it really is. <laughs> yeah, I made some soap and some bath bombs... I actually had, and I'm telling the truth, I had yours ready when I made, because I made them for my sister and my um, boyfriend's mom and my mom and my grandma, but yours fucking fell apart. And I knew I wasn't going to see you (laughs) for a while. So I was like, God damn it. I got to remake Ashley's. (laughs) I wouldn't even mind. I'd just throw it in the bath and be like, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So. Have you been watching Low Country? On HBO. I've never heard of it, no. It's the um, uh, docu-series about the Murdochs. Oh, that's what you were telling me. I didn't know that's what that was called. Okay. It's really good, you said? Well, I mean, I remember right before we even started this podcast, we were talking, we were at a Mexican restaurant and we were talking about the Murdochs and Mm -hmm. how he, how his son and wife had just been murdered and and you were just like, oh my God, it's like the craziest case ever. And now he's on trial right now. Yeah. Oh my god! Um, I've only seen like random he- he- headlines, um, so I'm not really. I haven't really been keeping up with it. I need to look into it more. But me too. And I didn't even really look into all the details of the story as it was unfolding because it was just so much that I couldn't even follow it. Like it just was like the timelines were everywhere and like everything was a lot. So, um, but the HBO docu series is very good at like weaving mm. it all together. Um, and very interesting. So I totally recommend it if you guys haven't seen it. I'm going to have to check it out. Um, Mallory recommended a show to me last week that I started watching. Oh, oh yeah, that's what we need to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> Milf Manor, baby. <laughs> if you guys have Discovery Plus and you want to be thoroughly appalled. Yeah, grossed out, um, just shocked pretty much. Watch Milf Manor. (laughs) 
Um, I don't know if we should say any spoilers or does it matter? No, 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 you can't. There's like a bomb. All right. So if you (laughs) want to watch it, like just watch the first episode until like the, there's like a bombshell that drops. And after that, you, you can just turn it off. Like, I think once you get to that point, like (laughs) that's all you need to watch. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I recommended it to my mom and stepdad who enjoy (laughs) trashy reality TV shows. Oh my God. And I was like, this is the ultimate trashy reality tv show like it is so repulsive yeah that i can't even believe anyone filmed it yeah i know they watched like almost a whole episode and they like they were like we had to turn it off oh really (laughs) (laughs) oh my god well it's funny because have you seen the show 30 rock Mm -hmm. on the show the president of nbc green lights a show called milf island (laughs) <laughs> and except for it's like Survivor with like milfs and then like eight year old boys. <laughs> so like, oh no! When I first saw that on the show, I was like, oh my god, this is hilarious. You know, reality TV would never, but this is funny because yeah, you know, it just kind of is a commentary on reality TV today. Yeah, and then fucking Milf Manor comes out. I'm like, oh my god, we're here. <laughs> like, yeah, this is where what? we're at as a collective humanity. Yeah. <laughs> oh my god, it's crazy. But I've told. Co-workers, I've told family members. <laughs> oh I've like I'm telling everyone about the word. <laughs> I'm like, if you guys want to know how low we are as a species, watch Milk Manor. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, oh my God. It's crazy. Oh, I want to spoil it so bad, but I'm not gonna <laughs> watch the first episode at least. Oh my god. So we are sitting oh. here in Mallory's home with by the light of the Christmas tree. Still, yes. <laughs> I still have not taken it down. I love it. Well, the real reason is I'm actually just too lazy to take it down. But I actually need like another lamp in my living room. <laughs> so right now it's serving as that extra lamp because it's so dark in here if I don't have it on. <laughs> I think this is the most beautiful lamp you could ever ask for. <laughs> I don't know if you ever want to trade this in. Yeah. Uh Maybe you can decorate it for every holiday. Some people do that. That's true. I don't know. <laughs> I think I got to take it down and just get another lamp. <laughs> Maybe my medicine will help me do it. <laughs> Finally. So what's up, Mallory? What's going on here? So drink of the night. In short, tonight's drink is a skinny margarita. But really, I got a skinny margarita re- margarita recipe And it just called for um, tequila, lime juice, and simple syrup. And I was like, this seems like it's not going to be that good. So I got Fever Tree Lime and Yuzu Soda. I don't know if that's how you say it. Is it Yuzu? I think so. I don't even know what the fuck that is. And I got Grapefruit Soda. And then, so I kind of just like laid out all the options. And we just put together our own margaritas. And Mm -hmm. also Ashley brought some. Ancho Reyes. Yeah, the chili, the chili liqueur. Yeah, chili liqueur to make it spicy if we wanted to. So, And of course we did. Yes. Well, I did. I did too, but I don't think I put enough in there. Yeah, it's not very spicy. but I did margaritas because the story takes place mostly in Mexico tonight. So, ay, 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 ay. I love Mexico. <laughs> I wish I was in Mexico right now. I've never been. Oh my God. So for... My baby moon, we went to Tulum. Oh, yeah. Which is like, we went to some cenotes. What is that? Which are like these 
um, underground caverns with like water. Like oh. so, you climb down and you I can remember jump down into the caves. Yeah, we saw some Aztec ruins, cool like stores and restaurants, and we should go. I'm down. And man. beautiful beaches. Yeah, amazing. Let's take a girls trip without the boys. Yes. <laughs> girls trip without the boys. Girls. Girls trip, trip without, without the boys. boys. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, fellas. Well, we need to get away from you for a little bit. Yeah, literally the only reason I picked a margarita is because we're in Mexico tonight. So, all right. Are we ready? Yep, let's do it. Okay. All right. Mark James Kilroy was born in Chicago, Illinois, into a Catholic family. Shortly after his birth, his family moved to Santa Fe, Texas. Not Santa Fe, New Mexico. Hmm. Is that where Santa Fe is? New Mexico? Or is it Arizona? <laughs> I think it's Arizona. Oh, shit. I don't know. <laughs> Sorry if you're from Santa Fucking Fe. Fucking geography. And Mark grew up there. So uh, he excelled in academics and athletics as a teenager. He played baseball, basketball, and golf with his friends at school. He was in the Boy Scouts of America and an honor student at Santa Fe High School, where he was a member of the student council and was ranked 14th in a class of 210 students. Upon graduation in 1986, he attended Southwest Texas State University in San Marcos, Texas, before transferring to Tarleton State University in Stephenville, Texas, on a basketball scholarship. At Tarleton, he became a member of the Lambda Chi Alpha fraternity. He then decided to give up his athletics and transferred to the University of Texas at Austin, to become a pre-med student and prepare for the MCAT, the Medical College Admission Test. And he was, by all accounts, well-loved by his friends and family and a popular guy. So in 1989, Mark was 21 years old, and he was at the University of Texas at Austin at that time. And on March 10th, 1989, Mark's childhood friend Bradley Moore had finished exams early at Texas A&M University and headed to Austin to pick him up. It was spring break, so they were going to go on a trip with some of their friends. Both of them headed to Santa Fe to pick up two other friends, Bill Huddleston and Brent Martin, before heading to South Padre Island, Texas, for spring break. After a foggy nine-hour drive to South Texas, they arrived at South Padre Island shortly before midnight. They checked in at the Sheridan Hotels and Resorts the next morning before heading to the beach. When they first arrived at South Padre Island, there weren't very many people there because it was like early in the spring break season. I guess um, different colleges, of course, do different weeks of the yeah. spring or whatever, and they were there early. But thousands of students from the entire U.S. were beginning to arrive as the weekend progressed. Beer sponsors were staging a variety of entertainment events, including free movies, music concerts, surf simulator activities. Oh, wow. <laughs> and opportunities to appear on TV commercials. <laughs> <laughs> like um, Girls Gone Wild? <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> oh, my God. Mark and Bradley made phone calls to their parents that day. Later that evening, they met up with a group of female students from Purdue University, and then they partied all night long until the next morning. 
following morning, Mark and his friends had more or less a daily routine in mind. They went to the beach in the morning and suntanned before lunch. Got their tan on. This is like the most 80s, 90s spring break ever. Yeah, they probably covered themselves in tanning oil and like short swimsuits. (laughs) Well, wait till you hear this. Oh, God. After lunch, they went to the beach area behind their hotel for the daily Miss Tan Line contest. Oh, my God. (laughs) Like, what is... Miss Tan Line contest? Yeah. So what do they do? That's what I was wondering is, like, if they have a bathing suit on, maybe they have a different bathing suit on than their tan lines. Like, I don't understand what that means at all. How tan can you get? Like, who's the most? Yeah, I guess who has the most prominent tan line? I don't know. (laughs) What if you were in that contest? You'd be, like, (laughs) beet red. and (laughs) I would win, probably, because I would still be the, you know. You'd have the most, like, line. Yeah. Except for a few, you'd have like boils, purple skin, and then <laughs> a fucking white tan line or burn line, I guess. So once the event was over that afternoon, Mark headed back to the hotel for a quick nap. On the agenda for that day was actually a trip over into Matamoros, Mexico. So Matamoros is a border town, so they weren't going very far into Mexico. South Padre Island is like, I don't know how far, it's like a few miles, I would think. So they left South Padre Island that evening and stopped for dinner at a Sonic drive-in in Port Isabel, Texas, where they met a different group of female students from University of Kansas who were planning to party in Mexico as well. So they were meeting all kinds of women from all over. <laughs> <laughs> the women then followed Bradley's car from Port Isabel to Brownsville, and parked their cars close to the Gateway International Bridge before crossing the U.S.-Mexico border by foot, which was weird. I don't know why they did that. Yeah, how do you do that? Mark's friends and the Kansas women spent most of their evening at Sergeant Pepper's nightclub in Matamoros before the groups went their separate ways. Mark and his friends then returned to South Padre Island early the next morning. So on March 13th, the third day of their spring break, Mark and his friends attended Another Miss Tanline contest behind the Sheraton. Yeah, they love that shit. (laughs) Early in the evening, Mark met with one of his former frat brothers at a condo party. At around 10.30 p.m., Mark and his friends headed back into Matamoros. So they're doing this back and forth thing. Um, They parked on the border and they crossed by foot again. I also just want to interject here. There's a lot of Spanish names and Spanish locations and stuff that I'm just going to fuck up. So please excuse me. I didn't take Spanish in high school. (laughs) We'll see how this goes. So that night, Matamoros was flooded with 15,000 spring tourists from the U.S. on the city's main tourist street, Alvaro Obregón. The sidewalks, street, and nightclubs were packed with foreign tourists looking to enjoy cheap alcohol and take advantage of Mexico's lax drinking laws. Because I guess you could drink when you're like 18 or whatever Mm -hmm. then. So not then. It might still be that way. Oh, my God. I remember on my 21st birthday. Well, actually, it was the day before my 21st birthday. We went to Olive Garden with my grandparents And my grandfather, actually, this was like, blew me out of the water. He was like, can we get her a glass of wine? It's her 21st birthday tomorrow. And she was like, oh, we can't give her one. She's not 21 yet. I was like, damn it. (laughs) 
It's like, are you kidding me? I was like, this is actually a once in a lifetime opportunity. And I think he was probably like trying to like give it to me so I would like get out of my system or something because he was uh, like, <laughs> I mean, so against drinking. He <laughs> probably asked then because he knew it was impossible and was still trying to be cool. I just figured he was old and didn't know what he was doing. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's sweet. Yeah. Yeah. So, but then we got uh, unlimited breadsticks. Yeah, we did. No, but I was going to say we got fucked up the next night at the karaoke thing. Oh. You and me and my coworkers. <gasps> I know what I wanted to talk about. What? <laughs> the lady at the Hartsfield-Jackson Airport in Atlanta who sprayed that fire extinguisher all over the oh. fucking airport. <laughs> and how I sent it to you. And I was like, Mallory, is this you? <laughs> Have we talked about this on the no. podcast? Oh, my God. Am I going to get charged like with a no, federal crime? No, that was like... 10 years, like 15 years ago or something. Is there a statute of limitations on this kind of thing? (laughs) (laughs) So Ashley sends me this video of a woman that's like losing her fucking mind in the airport. And she just starts spraying a a fire extinguisher everywhere. Yeah. And then of course, like she said, she sent it to me and was like, is this you? Well, (sighs) Oh my God. A long, long time ago. (laughs) Ashley and I went out one night. We got back. I decided to take the fire extinguisher off the wall. Tell him what you now, did. So, Tell him what you did, you scoundrel. So I didn't think it was going to be a big deal because <laughs> it was an open air hallway. Like it's not enclosed <laughs> in a building. So I was like, no big deal. I'll just spray this fire extinguisher and it'll dissipate. You know, there's no fire, whatever. So I spray it in the hallway. And then we go inside and we're doing whatever. And then like maybe five minutes later, there was this just dust in the air that kept creeping inside your apartment. And I was like, oh my God, is that from the fire extinguisher? And then maybe like 10 minutes later, an RA banging down the hallway. Get out! There's a fire! Get out! There's a fire! Well, the smoke detectors go off. Oh, yeah. That, too. Um, smoke detectors go off because I guess the fucking fire extinguisher also mm-hmm. sets them off, which I didn't know. <laughs> and when we go outside, it's, like, completely, like, dust. It's like a white wall. Like, yeah. it's just... I mean, I was baffled that <laughs> this actually... How are you baffled? You sprayed it. And it was like, we were like shocked at the, like, we never saw a fire extinguisher. Well, that's what I mean. It's like, I, once I saw how much it was, I was like, what the fuck? I was not. We thought it was like a spray, like a, yeah, it was like a, like like a foam or something. It was like a dust cloud. Yes. (laughs) And it like took over the entire floor and like this (laughs) fire alarms go off. It's like three in the morning at this point. Yes. Yes. Um, we had to evacuate the entire building. The entire had to <laughs> building had to be evacuated. At Everyone's three like in, the in their pajamas. Police are there. Yes, they're like, "What's going on? Oh my god!" Everyone's like half asleep. Uh huh. But they they went around to everybody that was like sitting outside and was like, "Does anyone know who did this?" And we were both just sitting there like, "Nope, <laughs> <laughs> nope." Are you sure I'm not gonna get? <laughs> Arrested 15 years later. Yes. Oh, my God. That was 
crazy. I know. <laughs> You're crazy. I know. What the hell? Why would I? But I just, did, I just didn't. It was a combination of me being an idiot and just literally not expecting that from a fire extinguisher. I remember you saying, I remember saying, don't do it. <laughs> I'm sure don't you do it. Don't do it. Oh Usually I'd be like, oh my God, do it. Yeah. But like for that, I was like, no, don't. Oh my and God. You did it. Why? Well, at least we have a good story now. I know. It's really amazing story. I hope you all enjoyed it. Yeah. Enjoy. <laughs> Holy shit. Back to the spring break story. So when they got to Matamoros, Mark and his friends decided to go to the bar with the shortest wait. They ended up at Los Sombreros, a bar with rock music and bright neon lights. After a few drinks, Mark and his friends left Los Sombreros and wandered to London Pub, which rebranded itself as Hard Rock Cafe for spring break. (laughs) This bar was louder and uh, more rowdy than Los Sombreros, so it was a really fun time. Um, So Mark and his friends stood at the bar while other tourists threw beer from the balcony. Mark met with a few women at the bar, and he wasn't seen by his friends for a while. Around 2 a.m., his friend Bill suggested the group head back to South Padre Island, so they weren't planning on spending the night in Matamoros because they had a hotel in South Padre Island. So as Mark's friends stepped out of London pub, they saw Mark leaning against a car and talking to a woman from the Miss Tanline contest. Ooh. He got in with one of them. Across Alvaro Obregón Street, thousands of tourists were leaving the bars and heading to Brownsville, but others moved in different directions. The large crowd of people made it difficult for Mark and his friends to walk across the border uninterrupted and in a group. So Bradley and Brent separated from the group and walked to Garcia's, which was a popular restaurant slash store close to the border. Mark stopped at the steps of a house on Alvaro Obregón to say goodbye to the woman from the Miss Tanline contest. Then he waited for Bill to walk towards him. Bill decided that he wanted to take a pee, and he ran to a nearby alley to relieve himself while Mark waited for him. But by the time Bill was done and caught up to the other two near Garcia's, Mark had completely disappeared. No sign of him anywhere. His friends searched for him for hours, even after the establishments had closed and the streets had cleared at around 4.30 a.m. Having exhausted all efforts in the city, they then crossed the border thinking Mark maybe had crossed to Brownsville and maybe he was waiting near the parked car. The boys did not find him near the car either and waited a few minutes in Brownsville before returning to South Padre Island. That's so scary. Uh, I know. So basically, like, yeah. Oh, my God. Like, the guy, his friend Bill went to pee, and then he came back out, and he was gone, and then they just couldn't find him anymore. So they thought maybe Mark had left for the hotel with somebody else. So anyways, they were going back to South Padre Island. They woke up the next day at the hotel, and Mark's whereabouts were still unknown. He was not at the hotel. He was nowhere. So then his friends decided to contact the police to report him missing. So the search initially began as a routine missing persons investigation. 
Students that were reported missing in Matamoros in the past would often turn up in the following days with a hangover and like a blurry memory of what had happened to them. This is unbelievable. Mark was one of 660 people who had disappeared in Matamoros in the first three months of 1989. 60 people had disappeared in three months? 60 people. Isn't that crazy? Are you going to tell us why? I have a theory. It doesn't, there's nothing that ever really states why, but what happens could explain part of that. Oh my God. Yeah. So his case drew more attention in the U.S. because his uncle, Ken Kilroy, worked at the United States Customs Service in Los Angeles. So when the news reached his uncle, a police task force was created in Brownsville to search for him. Alarmed with the bad publicity of his disappearance and the potential effects of tourism in Matamoros, local police officers tried to shift the blame and suggested that Mark had disappeared in Brownsville. Mark's friends were like, no, he did not. They were convinced that he disappeared in Matamoros. So the Mexican Federal Police Force vowed to work on the case and help the U.S. investigators. One of the commanders assigned Mexican agents to U.S. officials to accompany them in Matamoros. Um, And so what they did was they questioned people, potential witnesses, and worked on, you know, tips and everything. Just, you know, normal investigation stuff. Both Mexican and U.S. authorities suspected that Mark's disappearance involved foul play. And they eventually came to the conclusion that they think he had probably been killed. What? Killed? They speculated that Mark could have been a victim of drug-related violence or of, like, a robbery killing, but they were short on leads and couldn't make any firm conclusions. When Mark's friends actually reported the disappearance, customs agents went with them to Matamoros to help retrace their steps. Texan officials contacted the U.S. consulate in Matamoros and asked investigators to carry out a search with Mark's description in Matamoros jails and hospitals. Investigators even hired a hypnotist to see if they could figure out some additional clues, which they actually did. Under hypnosis, Bradley Moore stated that he remembered seeing a young Hispanic man wearing a blue plaid shirt with a visible scar across his face talking to Mark before he disappeared. He remembered that the man walked up to Mark and told him, hey, don't I know you from somewhere? though he said he was not sure if Mark responded back. But none of the friends were able to precisely recall the exact moment or place where Mark disappeared. So investigators thought after hearing this story that Mark was maybe kidnapped for robbery or ransom. Um, The first option actually seemed the most likely because they didn't have like a ransom note or anything. You know, there was no communication with anyone that would have abducted him. And they thought, you know, if Mark had been murdered, it was probable that his body was dumped in a remote location. Helicopters and terrain vehicles of the U.S. Border Patrol were called to look on the Rio Grande River, but no body was found. So during the investigation, Mark's parents headed to the Rio Grande Valley, and they circulated more than 20,000 handouts throughout the region and offered a $15,000 reward to anyone who could help locate their son. They met with Attorney General Jim Maddox, Texas Governor William Clements, and U.S. Senator Lloyd Benson to assist them on the case. 
Texan officials told Kilroy's parents that they were planning to talk to the governor and get people from Matamoros more involved in their son's disappearance. People from Mark's hometown traveled to Matamoros and distributed flyers offering a reward to anyone who would provide information on a safe return. U.S. authorities had praised the efforts of the Mexican federal police on the case, but they distrusted the state and municipal officials. The state and local authorities were acting really slowly and, like, not sharing information. So they actually suspected that whoever was involved with Mark's abduction might have insiders within their ranks. On March 26th, the case was highlighted on national television in the crime show America's Most Wanted. This gave the case nationwide attention and generated several phone calls and letters with people giving clues on Mark's whereabouts. However, the police stated that none of the leads generated were solid enough to pursue. A few days later, Mark's parents returned to Santa Fe, and they ended up raising money through garage sales. Well, Santa Fe residents ended up raising money through garage sales and car washes to help his family continue their search. Mm -hmm. Um, And at that time, because it had been at least 13 days, they went ahead and withdrew Mark from school. So on April 1st, 1989, Mexican federal police conducting a drug interdiction checkpoint saw a vehicle run the roadblock without stopping. The vehicle had crossed the international border from Texas and sped through Mexican Federal Highway 2, which connects Matamoros and Reynosa. So, but the police, instead of turning on their sirens and stopping the truck, they decided to follow it using an unmarked vehicle. I don't know why they decided to do that. Maybe, well, I guess maybe they were thinking they'll lead them to, because it was a drug check. Maybe yeah. they're like, oh, they'll lead me to where these people are operating from. Yeah, they could probably find more if they follow. Yeah. So the vehicle traveled out to the Santa Elena Ranch outside Matamoros. The police pulled off at a distance to observe. After about 30 minutes, the driver of the truck took off from the ranch and headed back to the city. So at that point, the officers decided to make their move on the ranch. In a quick search, the police discovered a shed on the property. To the unpracticed eye of an American, it actually seemed to be an ordinary shed with some melted candles, cigar butts, and empty bottles on the floor, and some greasy cauldrons in the yard. That's weird. Well, that is weird, but the Mexican cops knew immediately what they were looking at. They saw a place where black magic had been practiced. I mean, cauldrons? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I don't know. If I saw something like that, it's just like a, just looks like a bucket with some sticks in it. Mm, That looks like some Blair Witch Project, like. I don't know. I don't know if I would be like, I would just, well, I guess it's kind of weird that that it's there. That's weird. Yeah, I don't know. So when they reported this to their superior, um, Juan Benitez Ayala, the investigation came to a screeching halt, much to the distress of American lawmen who believed that the smugglers knew something about the disappearance of Mark. But Benitez was adamant. The search could not resume until the black magic had been neutralized. So he called off the search until a curandero, which is a traditional native healer or shaman, could be summoned to the ranch to cast out the demons. Oh. So they did like a whole blessing thing. 
you like um he cleared the negative energy exactly yeah so this thing that mallory has pulled up that i find kind of sketchy it's like a huge bowl like a a cauldron copper bowl with a bunch of like sticks in it i don't know it like kind of seems a little witchy to me (laughs) it does but i also think if i had no context on this picture whatsoever I would just be like, what the fuck is that? Like, I don't know if I would be like, oh, that's some dark magic shit. Yeah. Oh, well, what else would you think that was? I don't know. Somebody keeping their firewood and. <laughs> that's, that's just, those aren't, like, that's not firewood. That's like <laughs> sticks. Yeah, but they're on the middle of nowhere, Mexico. Maybe they don't have firewood. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. So after they blessed the place, the investigation could get going again. Um, So the police determined that the driver of the truck that blew through the checkpoint was Serafine Hernandez Garcia, the nephew of a local drug lord whose operations were based around the ranch area. But instead of arresting Hernandez Garcia, the police decided to continue gathering more evidence on the suspected criminal activities at the ranch and the organized crime members involved with the Hernandez family. They used informants in Matamoros to inquire about, quote, family activities at Santa Elena, that's the name of the ranch, in order to make a series of crucial arrests. On April 9th, they returned with several other policemen and arrested Hernandez Garcia, his uncle Elio Hernandez Rivera, and two men named David Serna Valdez and Sergio Martinez Salinas, along with the ranch's caretaker, Domingo Reyes Bustamante. While in custody, the detainees were actually very relaxed. They uh, were sent to jail while the police interrogated another caretaker at the ranch. This person revealed to the police that the ranch had frequent visitors from Serafine's criminal group. The ranch's caretaker identified Mark, through a photograph and stated that he saw him at the ranch. Yeah, the caretaker told the police. I saw him and then pointed at the shack on the ranch. Oh my God. When the police interrogated Hernandez Garcia separately, he confessed that several people, including Mark, had been killed over the course of several months at Santa Elena. What? What? Yeah. So Hernandez Garcia said that the slayings had been ordered by Adolfo Constanzo, a cult leader who practiced a ritual form of human sacrifice in the belief that it provided supernatural protection for the drug gang. (gasps) Yeah. Is that him? That's him. Constanzo believed that by sacrificing his victims, those doing the sacrifice were ensured strength abundance and immunity from law enforcement and injury (laughs) well buddy (laughs) that's crazy i know this guy looks like an emo gino yeah and he's super young too he's like 26 in that picture i think 25 something like that he has Um, the when all this happened emo side sweat bangs yeah he apparently had previously been a male model too oh Hernandez Garcia said that Constanzo had ordered his men to find a white Anglo male to sacrifice. 
According to Hernandez Garcia, he and other members of the gang had mingled with the spring break students in Matamoros on the night of March 14th. As Mark stood on the street near his friends, one of the men lured him close to a truck. As Mark approached the vehicle, Hernandez Garcia and another cult member, Malio Fabio Ponce Torres, <laughs> that was amazing. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Grabbed him and wrestled him inside the truck. That's horrifying. It's this, this is terrifying. This is absolutely horrifying. What I'm about to tell you. When one of the gang members stopped for a few moments to catch his breath two blocks along the road, Mark broke loose actually and ran away, but he was intercepted by another vehicle that was driven by another member of the gang who took him prisoner at gunpoint. He was then subdued and handcuffed in the back of a second car. So they drove Mark through the back streets of the city, past an industrial area, and then passing through the city's outskirts to the Santa Elena ranch. The men left him inside the car overnight. Shortly after dawn, the ranch's caretaker went to check on Mark, and he fed him bread, eggs, and water. About 12 hours after Mark was kidnapped, Constanzo and his men came to see him. They wrapped his face and mouth with duct tape and walked him through a field to a storage cabin with his hands still tied around his back. Throughout the night of the 15th, Constanza tortured and sodomized Mark. What the fuck? My jaw is on the floor. Yeah. He was then led out to the field where Constanzo killed him by chopping the back of his neck and head with a machete. What a way to go, man. Oh, no. His brain was oh then God. boiled. Sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> sorry. I told you it was going to get bad. Trigger warning. Fuck. Oh, <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Trigger warning. I'm sorry. We have to talk about brains being boiled. His brain was then boiled in a nganga, N-G-A-N-G-A, which is an African metal pot that Constanzo used to stew human and animal remains. Mark's legs were then chopped off above his knees to facilitate his burial. I don't know what that means. All I could find is that they did it to be able to bury him. A wire was then inserted into his spinal column so that once the body had decomposed, the bones could be pulled up from the soil easily. That is sick. I know. <laughs> what the fuck? That's crazy. Um, so then they dug a hole and, and they buried him. I think with that, let's go ahead and take a break. <laughs> oh my God damn it. <laughs> Jesus Christ. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> I was like... <laughs> this is like all, you know, background crap. And then I'm talking about certain people. Yeah, it's like very like, like you know, this happened, that second. happened. Fucking brains <laughs> boiled in a pot. Like, what the fuck? Yes. Yeah, no warning. <laughs> sorry. Oh, my God. All right. We're going to take a break because I got a cough. Bye. Bye. All right. We are back now. So before we get back to the story, 
my father, Joe Nathan, <laughs> Joe Nathan, had a request that we taste test a beer that he gave us. It's called Pineapple Habanero Hop Dang by Jekyll Brewing Company, which is located in Alpharetta, Georgia. So it's a pineapple habanero infused IPA. And I am Sounds not good. an IPA fan at all, but I love habanero spicy yeah pineapple i'm i like certain ipas if it's really bitter i don't like it yeah. but it depends on ipa okay so let's let's try it and give All our right. give a report cheers i feel like i'm not getting the full effect because i have shit in my sinuses <laughs> i'm not getting the effect at all i don't taste habanero I don't taste habanero. I definitely taste pineapple. I taste IPA for sure. Yeah. Yeah, it really just, it's like (gasps) real IPA heavy and pineapple is in there lightly. And I do not taste habanero at all. I don't like it. (laughs) (laughs) It's not my favorite beer ever either. Oh my God, I can't. Um, Sorry, dad. (laughs) That was not a success, but give us uh, more things to review. Yeah, we'd love (laughs) to make this a segment. Yeah, that'd be cool. (laughs) We never did it with the cheese. We should have done that. Uh, Oh, well. The cheese. The cheese was good. Mm -hmm. What was your favorite cheese? Oh. We had a cheese advent calendar from our friend Melissa. I would say either the pesto gouda or... There was one with peppers. I think it was another Gouda. My favorite was the truffle cheddar. Oh, that that one was so good. Yeah. Oh, my God. There yes. was two of them, and I was like, mm, 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 mm. <laughs> yeah. I love anything truffle, though. Oh Me, my too. God. There's a truffle popcorn at Trader Joe's. It's really good. Oh, shit. Okay. Back to Mexico. All right. So... Hernandez Garcia agreed to take the police to the spot where Mark was buried, which was marked by the ends of the wire coming out of the dirt. Hernandez Garcia explained the function of the wire. Once they retrieved the bones, cult members would wear them as necklaces to ward off danger and injury. Uh, Vertebrae necklace. Disgusting. Yeah. Yeah. On April 11th, the police took Hernandez Garcia and the four other suspects to Santa Elena and forced them at gunpoint to spend several hours digging up the graves. When the excavation was concluded, the suspects had unearthed 15 mutilated bodies, including Marks, all males who had been killed over a period of nine months. Mark's body was officially identified after the Brownsville police matched his dental records with the teeth found on the scene. How many people? Fifteen? Fifteen. Oh my god. Yeah. So that's why I was saying some of those missing people could have been... Well, yeah, that's like, what, 20% of Yeah. Shit. Yeah. This random-ass cult... Yes. Just this random random ass crazy people. Oh my God. It's insane. It's really bizarre to me how they 
can, I don't know, like successfully abduct that many adult males. Maybe they did it like via gunpoint or something like that. But it just seems like, I guess it's just weird. It's just weird to me because you always see women being abducted and women being targeted. And, and this is all fucking males. <laughs> well, they probably have more trust in people because they are not vulnerable. But also well, they're like yeah. on spring break and drinking. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my God. That's, that's really crazy. scary. It is crazy. Um, but um, actually, investigators concluded that most of the victims were actually rival drug dealers of Constanzo and not random abductees like Kilroy. So three out of the 15 bodies were never identified, which is so sad to me. At Santa Elena, the Mexican police also seized 110 kilos, which is 243 pounds of marijuana. <sighs> 108 grams of cocaine. What? 12 firearms, including three submachine guns and 11 vehicles, which some of them were equipped with telephones in 1989. Oh my God. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? So they were a cult, but they were also very heavily into like, drug trafficking. Yeah, they were drug traffickers. Yeah. Inside an iron pot, investigators discovered remains of human brain, a goat's head. I told you that. Pot was not right. I told you that pot was not right. Fuck. A goat's head, chicken feet, a turtle, several herbs, a horseshoe, and coins mixed with animal blood. So some cult shit. On April 12th, Ashley's birthday, when she was three years old, because it was Mm -hmm. 1989. (laughs) (laughs) On my third birthday. On Ashley's third birthday, April 12th, 1989. (laughs) The detainees were taken to the headquarters of the Mexican Federal Judicial Police in Matamoros for an informal press conference. So they took these people that they arrested to a balcony of some fucking building and let the press ask them questions. (laughs) Isn't that weird? It's like some handmaid's tale shit. Yeah. It's like, I don't even know. Like, what... What do they expect them to even say? Like, I mean, I know like journalists and crap follow, you know, like when a, tra- a prisoner is being transported, they'll be like, hey, why did you do it? Blah, blah, blah. Yeah, blah. Yeah. Like, like that. But they don't like we don't do that here. We don't display the arrested for people to ask questions to in a press conference. Well, they usually have lawyers that tell you not to speak to anyone. Yeah. So I guess they didn't have any lawyers and they're just I guess. I am not sure. It's just so weird to me that they did this. Did they talk? So, yes. I don't know exactly. I don't know any of the questions or what they said, but more than 250 international journalists arrived at the scene to take pictures and ask them questions. The four suspects were paraded from the building's balcony and were allowed to answer questions from the reporters. It looks like they're about to be hung. I know. It looks like a public execution. Yeah. (laughs) It does. It's so weird. Elio Hernandez Rivera, one of the arrestees, stated that he was an ordained executioner under Constanzo, but that Constanzo himself had murdered Mark. So... I don't know why, well, why would you fucking say that you were an ordained executioner? <laughs> oh, my God. 
Psycho. Yeah. yeah. As the camera zoomed in on the suspects, Hernandez Rivera showed his membership scars on his shoulders, back, arms, and chest. There were arrow-like cuts that were made with a hot blade. The marks were given to selected cult members with the authority to perform human sacrifice. I just want to say here, too, that this cult didn't have a name for themselves, um, which I thought was kind of weird, but the media gave them a name. So they were called the Narco-Satanists or the Narco-Satanicos in Spanish. Oh, my God. But they didn't call themselves that. It was just a publicity name, I guess. I don't know. (laughs) But it's like a pretty hardcore name. Yeah, yeah. Um, So two weeks after the bodies were exhumed from Santa Elena, the Mexican federal police returned to the ranch early in the morning to burn down the shack and lay a wooden cross above the ashes. So this is where I saw one article that said that they cleansed the shack before the investigation was done. This is uh, another article that said that it was done before they burned it down. So I don't know. Either way. Maybe twice. They could have done it twice, yeah. Either way, what they did was the folk healer basically went inside the shack, said a few prayers, sprinkled the floor with salt, and then concluded by making the sign of the cross. I guess it was a Catholic priest or something. I don't know. Or at least Catholic-influenced. The policemen then proceeded to spray gasoline around the shack before setting it on fire. The Mexican government offered no official explanation for their actions, but a source close to the investigation stated the police's motives were supernatural in nature. So basically people were questioning, why are you going to burn that down when there's evidence there? But a lot of people in Mexico are still like superstitious or like, yeah, you know what I mean? Very religious. Yeah, yeah. But they said that they knew the shack meant a lot to Constanzo and burning it would make him go insane. They said, quote, we will hit him where it hurts. Mm. And I don't know where this came from, but the next morning, reportedly, Constanzo went into a rage because they showed the arson on national television. So it worked. Yes. So by murdering Mark, Constanzo attracted international attention and forced the Mexican government to focus their efforts on bringing him and those involved to justice. On April 11th, the day the bodies were exhumed from Santa Elena, Constanzo actually fled to a Holiday Inn in Brownsville, Texas, before flying from McAllen, Texas, to Mexico City, where he had an apartment. So he escaped with four other cult members. Their names were Sarah Aldrete, Martin, or Martin Quintana Rodriguez, Omar Francisco Orea Ochoa and Alvaro de Leon Valdez. Is this like Uncle Jesse? No, that's Adolfo Constanzo, Mark's murderer. But he looks like a guy from Full House. He does, and he's actually not Mexican. So he, and this ties in well, it's a great transition because I'm just going to tell you a little bit about who he is. He was a Cuban American who was born in Miami in 1962. 
His father died when he was an infant, so his mother relocated to Puerto Rico with him, where she remarried. And then they returned to Florida in 1972. His stepdad died soon afterwards, leaving a large inheritance behind. His mother married again, this time with a man who was involved in drug trafficking and the occult. Wow. This is where it starts for him. His stepfather taught him a philosophy that Constanzo carried for the rest of his life. He told him that he should let non-believers, quote, kill themselves with drugs while he could profit from their foolishness. Yeah. Around the same time, Constanzo's mother believed that her son had psychic abilities. And she introduced him to Palo Mayombe, which is an Afro-Caribbean religion that involves animal sacrifice. He was also introduced to Santeria when he was younger, which is um, also an Afro-Caribbean religion, um, more specifically an Afro-Cuban religion. So he started as a palero, which is someone who practices Palo Mayombe, and eventually reached the status of high priest, Padrino. In 1984, he moved to Mexico City to start his life as a tarot card reader and eventually developed a cult following. His charisma, physical attractiveness, which I already said before, he previously worked as a male model, and claimed psychic talent granted him the opportunity to mingle with the Mexico City's upper class. His reputation for predicting the future and offering ritual cleansing became popular with some drug dealers, musicians, and police officers. Weird. Yeah. (laughs) But, I mean, that's just how it is. I mean, I feel like it's just how it is in Mexico. Like, I saw this show... Have you ever watched Dark Tourist on Netflix? No. That's a good one. You should watch it. Okay. This guy, he's... Um, have you ever seen Tickled? Yes. Same filmmaker. That was a crazy one. That was so gross. That's, I re- highly recommend Tickled, though. That was a really good one. <laughs> oh, God, yes. That was so crazy. But he goes to a city in Mexico, and it's just, like, everyone there is doing, like, voodoo shit. Like, Some kind of black magic stuff. Like, I feel like it's very common, or at least more common, obviously. It's more accepted, probably. Yes, yeah. Um, The other cult leader was Sarah Aldrete, a Matamoros native and an honor student and cheerleader at Texas Southmost College. So she kind of lived two separate lives. She would go to school in Texas and then... She would come back to Mexico and have a completely different life with her drug dealer boyfriend, Gilberto Sosa. And he uh, was actually linked to the Hernandez clan, which led her to Constanzo. So in 1987, she actually met Constanzo and eventually became the cult's main recruiter. Investigators believe that Aldrete's physical attractiveness and charm helped her lure men to join the cult or set them up to be abducted and killed. She recruited people by first showing them the 1987 thriller film, The Believers, which was about a New York City-based cult that practiced human sacrifice for money and influence. It's just like a, just like a movie. <laughs> I thought so you were going to tell me she lured them in with her tan lines. Oh, God. No, I don't know. Maybe she... Oh, my God. That would be crazy if she was a Miss Tanline lady. 
That'd be so crazy. <laughs> so she literally lured them in with a movie that like semi related to their beliefs. Yeah. I she well, they said that she lured them in with her charm and physical attractiveness. And then they watched this film that like made cult behavior kind of feel normal. Yes. And she would force them to watch the film again and again in order to indoctrinate them into the necessity of human sacrifice. I don't know how she forced him, them. I'm like envisioning like a clockwork orange type scenario. Yeah, like your eyelids are plastered open. Watch this movie, please. Yeah. That's how they were desensitized to human sacrifice. I guess they probably still wanted to be a part of it. And then she was just desensitizing them to human sacrifice. I don't know. It's cool. Just like do it. Yeah, it's totally fine. So students and teachers at her college in Brownsville recalled her as a friendly and studious physical education student who showed no signs of abnormal behavior or involvement with a religious cult. She's a PE teacher. PE student. Like uh, she was majoring in physical education. So she's a student of PE. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yeah, because what's the saying? Like, teachers who... What is it? Teachers who can teach... Teachers who can teach... Teach something. <laughs> oh, wait, wait, wait. Hang on. Look it up. <laughs> okay. <laughs> oh, my God. Apparently, it's a Woody Allen quote. So... <laughs> Those who can't do, teach. And those who can't teach, teach gym. That's from Annie Hall, apparently. I love that movie. (laughs) I haven't seen that. But Woody Allen's a creep. So she's a normal student, whatever, in Texas. And across the border in Matamoros, however, she was involved in drug smuggling operations and obviously coal activities. Um, some of her former classmates did find it suspicious that she drove a 1989 vehicle with an embedded telephone. Mm, fancy PE teacher. Yeah. Well, or student. Student. <laughs> student of PE. Do you remember, did you ever have a car with a bag phone? No. The car that we had when I was a little kid, like the first car I remember. Yeah. Had a bag phone. A bag phone? It was a literally a zip up like bag thing in the car that had a phone inside. Oh my god! I never had that. You, mu- your family must be wealthy. They were not, so I don't know how we got a bag phone in the car. I think. Well, my dad loved tech stuff. Oh, he must have so- been like, "This is where we allocate the funds." Exactly. He would. He would spend more on tech stuff that we probably shouldn't have spent money on. It's like spaghettios for you. Yeah. Bag phone in the car. (laughs) Anyway. Okay. So (laughs) we're like off the rails. So investigators believed that her proximity to the U.S.-Mexico border allowed her to keep her two lives separate for years. I mean, for years. Because of her contradictory lifestyle. Now, this is a reach for me. I saw this and I was like, okay. Law enforcement said that they believed that she was living a double life and showed signs and symptoms symptoms of having a multiple personality disorder. I think she was just doing what she wanted on the DL. 
How could police ever make that I don't fucking know. diagnosis? I don't. They can't. U.S. and Mexican law enforcement agencies carried out an international manhunt to locate Constanzo and the rest of his cult members. The police believed that Constanzo had possibly fled to Miami to visit his mother, but, as I said earlier, Constanzo had opted for Mexico City, where he hid with, where he hid with several of his followers for short periods of time. Um, rumors began to surface that Constanzo was seen in Chicago, Illinois, other rumors suggested that Sarah Aldrete was spotted in schools throughout the Rio Grande Valley and that she had vowed to kidnap children for every jailed cult member. Just like basically crazy rumors and just bullshit tips and stuff like that. A convenience store clerk in Clovis, New Mexico, called the police and told them that he had seen a couple matching the description of Constanzo and Aldrete stopping at his store to purchase something. According to investigators, Constanzo was last seen driving a 1989 Mercedes Benz in Brownsville, Texas. In Matamoros, law enforcement raided Sarah's house, where they discovered an altar and several religious images. They also stated that the house's interior was covered with blood. Ew. Yeah. In the Cameron County Sheriff's Office, authorities released a wanted poster of Constanzo stating that he was extremely dangerous and indicted him and Sarah Aldrete for aggravated kidnapping. Just FYI, they never explained why her house was covered in blood. I have no clue. Oh, great. Yeah, sorry. (laughs) Just a random pee student. The blood-covered house makes a lot of sense. (laughs) Both were also indicted by a state jury in McAllen, Texas, along with 11 other cult members from Constanzo's organization for importing marijuana, conspiracy to import marijuana, conspiracy to possess with the intent of distributing, and possession with the intent of distributing. Lots of drug charges. Cameron County officials also issued arrest warrants for the other cult members who were at large. Although none of the leads proved successful, the police encouraged citizens to continue helping them in their search. Houston police believed that Constanza was probably hiding in Houston because he was linked to a $20 million failed cocaine operation that they busted there in June 1988. $20 million. Yeah. When the house was raided, investigators found ritualistic candles, an altar, and paperwork with... Serafine Hernandez Rivera's name on it. And the police believed that Constanzo bought several properties across Houston in the past and were investigating if he had visited any of his alleged hangouts. Serafine cooperated with the U.S. officials and was sentenced to 18 months in prison. And then he was released in June 1990 and returned to Brownsville. Okay, so... On April 17th, in Mexico City, the police raided one of Constanzo's properties in Atizapan. I'm probably saying that wrong. (laughs) Excuse me. (laughs) They discovered piles of homosexual pornography and a hidden... Piles. Piles. (laughs) Piles of it. And a hidden ritual chamber with an altar. This led the police to actually question gay people in Mexico City... To see if they had any leads on where Constanza was. <laughs> One time my cousin and I found gay porn in the woods at my grandparents' house. 
So, do you think it might be your grandparents? No, they owned a trailer park that was on their property. It had to have been one of the people that lived there. How old were you? We were probably like 10 or something like that. And you found gay porn? Yes. 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 And I remember my aunt asking us, it was me and Aaron. (laughs) Did you tell them? Yeah, we, yeah. My aunt was like, have you ever seen a penis before? <laughs> yes, and this you know, gay just like, no. <laughs> um, but what about, what about the gay porn you found? They took it and threw it away, I guess. I don't know. Oh, my God. Yeah. I'm sorry. It's okay. <laughs> it's a funny story. So they were questioning gay people. Have you seen this man? We saw gay porn in his house, so obviously you've got to know who he is. You're gay. (laughs) So the Mexican police stated that no evidence was found at the scene to link Constanzo or his men to any murders committed there. You know, they saw the altars and ritualistic belongings, but they didn't find any traces of blood. Um, Nobody was arrested at the the scene, but they did arrest a lady, um, which was the sister of one of Constanzo's lovers and henchmen. So I guess she was involved at some point. They also found Sarah Aldrete's purse and other belongings, which they thought at that point, maybe Constanzo had murdered her because like all her crap was left behind. She knew a lot about the inner workings of the cult. So they thought maybe he killed her and buried her somewhere in the city. But the U.S. authorities thought that maybe Sarah had purposely left her belongings behind to confuse investigators and make it appear that she was dead. The Mexico City Police Department noticed that the Matamoros killings were similar to murders carried out in Mexico City between 1987 and 1989. After consulting local witchcraft practitioners and sorcerers, the police heard that Constanzo was probably hiding in Cuauhtémoc, which is one of the city's boroughs. Another contact told the police that there was an address of interest in the Veronica and Juris neighborhood, I'm sorry, next to Cuauhtémoc. The police department sent 16 officers to search the area. At a supermarket, they interrogated a shoemaker who claimed to have seen a woman who matched Sarah Aldrete's description. The police then spotted a man at the supermarket who was attempting to buy large amounts of groceries with U.S. dollars. They followed the man and saw that he was living at an apartment on Rio Sena. By the end of the week, the police concluded that the man was De Leon, which was one of the escaped cult members, and that he was actually buying groceries for Constanzo. So... On May 6th, 1989, the police surrounded the building that he was taking the groceries to and waited for traffic to subside before raiding the premises. However, a black vehicle pulled up in front of the apartment complex and the police walked over to investigate. It was at that point, Constanzo noticed the police from the window of his apartment and opened fire at the (gasps) officers who were at ground level. Oh my God. Constanzo threw coins and paper money from the window and some of his money he burned on the stove. 
he basically, I don't know why he was throwing money out the window, but he was trying to get rid of his money because he didn't want anybody to have it if he couldn't have it because he knew he was cornered. Oh, wow. He eventually ran out of ammo and began to lose his, his patience. After about 45 minutes, uh, worried of his, you know, imminent capture, Constanzo ordered DeLeon to kill him and Quintana Rodriguez. DeLeon hesitated at the beginning, but Constanzo hit him in the face and told him that he would suffer in hell if he did not do as he commanded. Constanzo then hugged Quintana Rodriguez and DeLeon stood in front of them before he opened fire and killed the two with a machine gun inside a closet. When the police climbed up the stairs and made it to Constanzo's smoke-filled apartment, Sarah Aldrete ran from the door screaming that Constanzo was dead. DeLeon later confessed that Constanzo had lost his mind and was saying that, quote, everything was lost and that, quote, no one was going to have his money. He also stated that he participated in Mark Kilroy's murder and in other killings at Santa Elena, but both agreed that Constanzo did most of the killings himself. So Sarah denied her participation in the killings and stated that she was unaware of them until she saw the victims on national television. She said she was sorry to hear about Mark's murder. She stated that she was not an official member of the cult and was just barely going through initiation. So she had no, no uh, hand in it. In addition, she stated she was held prisoner during Constanzo's hiding in Mexico City and then they asked her if she was in love with Constanzo, and she said she was not, and she was only his follower. So at the scene, they took Aldrete, De Leon, Orea Ochoa, and two other men into custody. They also arrested two other cultists, which were women, later that day. They were renting one of Constanzo's apartments. The People arrested that day were held for homicide, criminal association, wounding an officer, and damage to property. Fearing that Constanzo might have purposely faked his own death. I don't know how they thought that he faked his own death when he was like literally shot inside of a closet. But they did a fingerprint analysis to confirm that it was actually him. And it was. I just thought that was weird. Um, On... May 15th, a judge refused to set bail for the individuals arrested that day because they were wanted for crimes that would accumulate over 50 years in prison. So no bail. One of the people that were that was arrested, Orea Ochoa, on August 27th, he was admitted to a hospital after being diagnosed with AIDS. And the police had said that he and Sarah Aldrete were both Constanzo's lovers. But Aldrete did not have AIDS. So, um, and he ended up dying on February 11th, 1990 from AIDS in August, 1990 DeLeon was sentenced to 30 years in prison for killing Constanzo and Quintana Rodriguez. The ranch caretaker raised Bustamante was accused in court of cover up, but he was released from prison on December 11th, 1990 after paying a bond of 500 us dollars. Oh, wow. Yeah. Here, take my money. Yeah. (laughs) Sarah Aldrete got the brunt of the deal. On May 3rd, 1994, she 
was sentenced to 62 years in prison. So she is still in prison to this day. And she actually came out in 2003 and spoke to the press, denied her participation in the murder. She said it was impossible for investigators to understand what happened at Santa Elena because the biggest evidence in the case, Constanzo, was dead. She also said the police hid the names of famous people involved with Constanzo for their own convenience. And she obviously said she was innocent. Um, And then the following year, she interviewed with the press again and stated that she had been tortured to confess. She said she had been stripped naked, blindfolded, beaten upside down, and then had her toenails yanked. She claimed that she was beaten so severely that doctors told her she would never be able to have children. Oh, my God. Uh, Yeah. She actually, in the early 2000s, published an autobiography where she detailed how she met Constanzo and the group and her experiences when she was allegedly taken hostage by Constanzo, her mistreatment by authorities, and obviously just her version of the story. She in that book claimed that she visited Constanzo in Mexico city and then was taken, taken hostage after Constanzo decided to not let her go because he believed that she would go to the police and tell them where they were hiding. So she said that Constanzo and the rest of the group were unaware of the killings that occurred in Matamoros until they found out that the police were looking for them but went into hiding nonetheless because they feared for their lives. Um, And then she detailed her alleged mistreatment in jail, the beatings, psychological torture, rape, and an unfair trial. What do you you think about her? I was fascinated by her, to be honest with you. I ended up looking up and found, like, some Spanish news websites on her. I tend to not believe what she says about her innocence. I think she was involved more than that. Maybe not as involved as the media portrayed her to be because I feel like that time news was very sensationalized and this was a fucking satanic cult. So people were calling them, you know, narco Satanists. She may have had things blown a little out of proportion But I still don't think she's innocent. Hmm. I actually found that she is in, she's still in prison, a women's prison in Mexico City. And she leads a theater group now for the prisoners in that (laughs) prison. (laughs) So anyway, just a tidbit. She actually claimed that Constanzo was not killed by... DeLeon, well, supposedly Constanzo had ordered him to kill him and Quintana Rodriguez, but she said that he was executed by the police when they raided the apartment. Um, And then, of course, she questioned the police's decision to burn down the the shack in Santa Elena, which, you know, I kind of agree with because it probably contained the fingerprints of the murderers. After Mark was confirmed dead... For the most part, the U.S. media labeled the group as Satanist and gave little mention to the drug-related violence that was widespread in northern Mexico, thus failing to provide a wider picture of what happened at Matamoros. 
reports were saying that because human body parts were found inside a large metal pot, the group practiced cannibalism. And other writers, however, stated that Constanzo believed in Pembe, which was the devil in Palo Mayombe, which was the religion his family had introduced him to. When media coverage and allegations of Constanzo's affinity towards Satanism died down, several Afro-Cuban scholars stated that Constanzo's actions were fueled by his personal conviction and psychopathic involvement with Palo Mayombe. They argued that Constanzo used Palo Mayombe for his own financial, illicit, and psychological needs by convincing his cult members to help further his drug trafficking operations. Which I don't know what, what to believe, whether he was doing it, whether he really believed that this was going to protect him from law enforcement, or if he was just doing this to, yeah, like help further his drug trafficking operations, like trying to control people, you know, yeah. like cult leaders do. Because through, you know, human sacrifice, he promised his members that they were protected from the law, so... On the 20th anniversary of their son's murder, Mark's parents visited the Rio Grande Valley and Matamoros to thank the people who had supported them in their search for their son. Mark's father stated that people were supportive and called the police whenever they saw something suspicious that they thought was related to their son's disappearance. He said that it was easier to overcome their son's death because of the support they received. Mark's mother said she received a cross from a Brownsville woman when she was searching for her son in 1989, she said, quote, It's a reminder every time that I know that the Lord was involved in everything. And that's it. That's all I got. Oh. Wow. So my sources, Wikipedia, Daily News, a really good article by Gary Cartwright written in 1989 for Texas Monthly. Um, the West Side Gazette, and Borderland Beat. Crazy, crazy, crazy. 80s spring break gone awry. Yeah. We started wow. in spring break and ended in a fucking nightmare. Yeah, crazy. Sorry again, guys, for my fucking sinus issues. Um, I think it got a little worse as the episode went on, but... Well, that was enlightening. I hope you all enjoyed this episode. Yes. Follow us on Instagram and join our Facebook group. Send us an email if you have any constructive criticism or want to suggest a future case because we're always looking for new stuff. Click that little uh, review button on Spotify. You don't have to write anything. Just put a number and that number should be five. So anyways, be coming at you in another couple weeks. Where Ashley's going to bring us a story. I don't mm-hmm. know what it is. You, you do know what it is because I told you. Oh, you I just do forgot. You know what it is. Now I remember. Okay, okay. Yes, it is something that a listener has recommended and it's also a very big case. So yeah, yeah. stay tuned and we love you and thank you guys so much for listening. Thanks, babies. Goodbye. We'll see you in a couple.